Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. As most of you know, one of the issues that we've been trying to work through on this show is the issue of transgenderism. Because as an ideology, it has absolutely swept the Western world in just the last decade or so. And most people have a really hard time figuring out how we got to this place and what we can do to push back. And there's an absolutely phenomenal book that came out last year by Nancy Percy called Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And Nancy Percy, for those of you who don't know, was hailed in The Economist magazine as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, which I'm sure you'll agree is quite the hefty title. She's a best-selling author and speaker and actually serves right now as the professor of apologetics and a scholar-in-residence at the Houston Baptist University. She's the editor-in-large of the Percy Report and a fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. She has served as a visiting scholar at Biola University's Tory Honors Institute, a professor of worldview studies at Karen University, and the Francis A. Schaefer Scholar at the World Journalism Institute. She's co-written books uh, with Chuck Colson and One of her most amazing books is called Total Truth, where she actually traces the historical decline of American faith. And this new book, Love Thy Body, essentially tackles all the big issues. Uh, Dr. Robert P. George uh, said, said of this book, liberal secularist ideology rests on a mistake, and Nancy Percy in her terrific new book puts her finger right on it. In embracing abortion, euthanasia, homosexual conduct, and relationships, transgenderism, and the like, liberal secularism is philosophically as well as theologically untenable. And so in this book, Nancy Percy tackles transgenderism and talks about how activists detach gender from biological sex and how this ideology has really been taking root for some time. And so she also examines the issues of homosexuality and abortion. I can't think of three more hot-button topics to include in a single book, but Nancy Percy, who is honestly just a a wonderful writer, tackles all three of them. This book is not very difficult to read, and I think she does an absolutely phenomenal job at explaining how our culture got to this point in terms that everybody can understand. And so for anybody who's really trying to figure out where our culture went wrong and how we went so insane from a philosophical perspective... Nancy Percy's book, Love Thy Body, is a great place to start, and she joined me on the show to discuss her book and to talk about how we came to this transgender moment. So just to start off, uh, just tell our listeners a bit about uh, who you are and your work and and how you got to be an author of of books on all these different controversial subjects. Well, I have to tell you, Jonathan, a lot of it came about because of the way I converted to Christianity. I had been raised um, in a Lutheran home, Scandinavian. My father's Swedish, my mother's Norwegian. But as a result, they relied, I think, somewhat on that ethnicity to hold people in the church. Right. You know, when I started asking questions in high school, um, my parents were almost, the response was almost, well, we're Lutheran. You know, what else are you going to be? So I didn't get any good answers when I started asking questions about Christianity. I just wanted to know how do we how do we know that it's true? That was my only question. How do we know it's true? And I, I asked the university professor, uh, and I thought, well, he's, he, you know, an educated person like that will have an answer for me. And I said, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me. 
Okay. And I thought, that's, that's all? That's all you got? I even talked to a dean of a seminary, and all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. So as a result, I came to the conclusion that Christianity really did not have any answers. And I decided the only intellectually honest thing to do was to lay it aside and try to make my own search for truth. And I started walking down the hallway to the library at the public school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought, you know, if I can't get any people to answer my questions, maybe maybe it's philosophers that talk about things like what is truth? Right. How do we know it? What's the meaning of life? Is there really an objective foundation for ethics. And I, I rapidly decided the answer to all of these things was no. And I was the one, for example, in my group of friends arguing for moral relativism. When a, a friend of mine said, oh, she's so wrong. And I jumped in, no, you can't say anyone's right or wrong. Oh, interesting. The kind of, I, I came to a very relativistic, skeptical position. And then I went to Europe. We had lived in Europe when I was a child, and so I wanted to go back uh, for school. And I ended up at Labrie, which is a ministry of Francis and Edith Schaefer in Switzerland. Okay. And that was the first time I ever heard any kind of Christian apologetics. That was the first time I heard people make a case that there really are rational arguments for Christianity, that there really are answers. These were people who had read the same philosophers I had read and had answers for them. I had just never encountered anything like that in the Christian world before. And I don't know if you know much about Francis Schaeffer, but he also wrote extensively on the arts. And yes, so, yes. Uh, and I, I was attending um, uh, the Heidelberg Conservatory, studying violin in Germany. So that was impressive to me. And then finally, uh, at that time, this was in the early 70s, all the young people at Librie were, were hippies. So you know, back then, those were the cool people. But what it meant was these these were Christians able to reach across that cultural divide and reach out to a disaffected young people. So I was just uh, amazed at what I saw at Labrie. And I didn't become a Christian right away. Uh, I have to tell you, I stayed for a month and then I left because Christianity had let me down. You know, it had not answered my questions. And so I was not interested at all unless I was completely intellectually convinced it was true. And so I spent several, uh, I spent several months reading. You know, I discovered C.S. Lewis and other apologists at Libri, and uh, finally became a Christian. And decided, decided it was intellectually persuasive that it did answer the questions that other philosophers and philosophies did not answer. And then I thought, well, where are, where are, where do I find other Christians? Because I wasn't tied into a church or anything at that time. And I thought, oh, well, I know some Christians back at Libri, so I went back to Libri and stayed another four months, and that's where I really got grounded in my understanding of Christianity as a worldview. But you see, it was because the intellectual questions were so important to me, I just, and, and I think they are to everyone, even if you're not, quote-unquote, an intellectual. We're all made in God's image. We all think rationally. All of us cannot accept an idea unless it makes sense to us. And so I think for everybody, they need to think through the issues that face Christianity, the objections that people raise. And our young people in particular, you know, the church is hemorrhaging young people. And the surveys show that the, the major reason is, quote-unquote, unanswered doubts and questions. 
young people want to make sense of Christianity over against all the challenges that come out of an increasingly secular society. Well, you're now recognized as one of one of the, the premier evangelical scholars in the United States, and you've specifically dedicated an enormous amount of your career to answering those questions you've written. Uh, Finding Truth, Total Truth, which is a, an amazing book, uh, Saving Leonardo uh, on Christianity and Art, and then, of course, the book we'll be talking about later in this interview, your 2018 book, uh, Love Thy Body. So how did you end up going from Labrie, where you'd realized there was answers to your questions, to becoming a provider of those answers to others? Well, I have to tell you, once I was at Labrie, it was just part of my DNA. <laughs> you know, that, that's what I did for fun. Um, I was always looking for um, ways to answer the objections that secular people raise. I felt, because, because that was such a big part of my own conversion, I felt greatly responsible for answering other people's questions. You know, I, I took them very seriously. I think in the church, sometimes you hear people dismiss questions like, well, you, it's just a cover for a moral issue, for example. And um, or they just you know or they're just rebellious. They're um, they they have their favorite sins they want to keep doing. And and I think that that's a mistake because, like I said, we are made in God's image. We do think rationally. And so I, one of the things I appreciated at Labrie is that Schaefer's one of Schaefer's common phrases was, "We need to, Christians need to give honest answers to honest questions." And so he would always treat your questions seriously. So when I came back to the States after the second time at Labrie, uh, I went to seminary. I thought, well, where can I learn how to answer these questions better? So I got a seminary degree, and then I went to a Christian graduate school in Toronto uh, called the Institute for Christian Studies, um, studying history of philosophy. Um, and that's I just... All my writing then became a matter of what are the most common questions. I wrote for a while on for a small publication on creation, evolution, intelligent design type of issues. And I was the founding editor of Breakpoint, which was Chuck Colson's radio program, which was a commentary program that taught Christian worldview. And so it was just, and then I began writing my books. So it was just a, a, a consistent pattern. After my after my uh, time at Labrie, everything I did was saying, what are the major objections people raise to Christianity, and how can we answer them, and, and trying to help Christians think through those issues. That brings us to, to the topic of your most recent book, Love Thy Body. And this is an extremely important book because uh, the objections to Christianity in many cases are not the same objections that were common, common in, the, in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, when I when I talk to a lot of secular people, a lot of people are now operating under the assumption that because Christianity prevents people from being happy in their view, so that would be, you know, affirming uh, transgender people and, and gender dysphoria, affirming, let's say, uh, same-sex marriage as a moral or even a good thing. Um, the objections to Christianity deal a lot more with the so-called pelvic issues than they used to. And because of that, these are, are much more emotional arguments and much harder to refute with, with cold logic because cold logic ends up sounding, well, rather cold to a lot of people. And that's made a lot of people, uh, it's put a lot of people at a loss to deal with issues, especially like transgenderism. I'm only 30 years old, but it, it, 
it's just taken off even in the last five years to an extent that we couldn't have imagined uh, just a handful of years ago. And and your book, Love Thy Body, is, is one of only two that I'm really aware of that addresses the issue of transgenderism head on. The other one uh, being by Ryan T. Anderson uh, when, when Harry became Sally. So what made you decide to tackle the issue of transgenderism, which, as you know, is probably one of the most hot-button issues of, of, of the last couple of years and probably will be to come uh, for the next decade or longer. Well, um, one of the things that Francis Schaeffer helped Christians realize was that the concept of truth itself has been divided. And that this is one of the main reasons that Christians are not taken seriously in the public realm today is because... After the scientific revolution, many people decided that the only reliable truth is scientific truth, what we can know through our senses empirically, what we can test scientifically. That's objective. That's reliable. And anything that cannot be stuffed into a test tube or studied under the microscope is not real. And so what does that do to religion and theology, Christianity, the whole, all the spiritual issues? Well... He used the image of two stories in a building. He said, in, in the lower story is science and objective truth. And then in the upper story, sort of like an attic, where you throw the things that you can't really know for sure, uh, you put Christianity, morality, and so on. Well, I, as I began studying the moral issues, I realized the same, the same divided thinking applies to the moral issues. Except there, it's body versus person. In the lower story is what we can know through science, and that's just your physical self. You can know, uh, you know, you can you can study the body, physiology, biology, anatomy, but the person is thrown into the upper story. And what's interesting is that body-person dualism explains all of our contemporary moral issues. Transgenderism says your body has nothing to do with who you are. All that matters is your your feelings, your personal sense of self, your your desires. So it's only the upper story in that two-story division. It's only the upper story that counts. And the reason I decided to deal with this, number one, is that Francis Schaeffer's division helped people so much understanding it. And the second reason is that um, I, knew, I knew a young boy who uh, clearly had gender dysphoria, from a very young age. And his, I tell his story at the beginning of the chapter on transgenderism in my book, Love Thy Body. Th- this was a young boy who, before he was even walking, when he was still crawling, uh, his babysitter said to his mother, he's too good to be a boy, <laughs> meaning <laughs> he, he's, he was sweet and compliant and gentle and the things that we stereotypically associate with a girl. And in preschool already, any time his mother came to pick him up, he was playing with the little girls, not the little boys, invariably. So by elementary school, he was already saying to his parents, I think like a girl. I feel the way girls do. God should have made me a girl. And this was with with weeping and tears because it was not an easy thing to face, um, to always feel like, you know, something's wrong with me. I'm not like a normal boy. Um, uh, in by 14, he was scouring the internet for uh, for information on 
of sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do <clears throat> in all of this? His parents, first of all, they were very careful to let him know they loved him the way he was. For my book, Love Thy Body, I interviewed people who, who had grown up homosexual or non-gender conforming. And often they said, uh, one, boy, one, one young man said to me, I always liked music and art and poetry. And my father was baffled and was always trying to push me into sports and more masculine things. Well, they didn't, um, this little boy I uh, named Brandon, this little boy who was gender dysphoric, his parents were very careful not to do that, not to imply that there was anything wrong with him. And they kept telling him, you can be a gentle, sensitive, relational boy. It's okay. Right, um, right. And they, they said, it's, one of their favorite phrases was, it's not you that's wrong, it's the stereotypes that are wrong. Um, and and they, they even took him through personality tests, like the Myers-Briggs personality test, to show him it's perfectly possible for a man to be truly masculine and be on the one end of the spectrum, the sensitive, gentle, gentle, emotional side of the spectrum, just as it's perfectly possible for a woman to be fully feminine and to be on the assertive, take-charge side of the spectrum. So if they said to him, God has probably prepared you for one of the caring professions, like counselor or healthcare worker, something that requires your, your, your sensibilities. So the upshot was that I wrote on transgenderism because I saw it from two sides. I saw that I, I, had, I had a personal connection with a boy who really did have gender dysphoria. And then secondly, I saw that Schaefer's two-story divide explained what was happening, why the transgender ideology says, you, don't worry about your body. Ignore your body. Your body tells you nothing about who you are. Your body is not part of your authentic self. The only thing that matters is your feelings. It's because people have this two-story division in their mind, and the transgender ideology fits with it perfectly. And that's where we, that's where we need to confront it on both sides, on the personal side, on a, on a pastoral level, and intellectually, we have to show that it's, an, it's, a, it's a very destructive and fragmented and divided view of the human person. You've covered a lot of history in a lot of your books as well. Could you explain for our listeners, because I know myself when this, this first surfaced, I was confused as to how we'd gotten to this position and how quickly we'd gotten there. Can you explain how this, this transgender phenomenon seems to have exploded in, in less than a decade? Yes, well, a lot of it is because they're, they're following in the footsteps of the homosexual movement, and the homosexual movement also rests on this divided view of the human being. Uh, it also rests on that, that, that um, denigrates the body. So think of it this way. When you, no, no one really denies that on the level of biology, anatomy, chromosomes, uh, physiology, human, that, that males and females are counterparts to one another. To accept a same-sex identity, then, is to deny that, that design, that obvious design of the human being. It's to say, why should my body have any say in my moral choices? Why should my biological sex be part of my 
personal identity. So you see, it's a denigration of the body. It's the same. It's the same thinking that my body should. My body has nothing to do with who I am. It gives no clue to my identity. It, there's no. The, the, the body has no design that I am morally obligated to respect. It has no intrinsic purpose. And that's exactly what transgenderism is saying, except more obviously. Um, it's more obvious in the transgender movement because they, they, the activists say it explicitly. A BBC documentary says, at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. And in that war, of course, it's the mind that wins. I sometimes read what the, um, you know, what the philosophers are saying because that's what's going to uh, filter down to ordinary people. And I, so I read a book, I think it's probably the first one out there, that gives a philosophical defense of transgenderism. And even though it was defending transgenders, it was by a Princeton University professor. And in the process, the author acknowledged that transgender involves disconnect, self-estrangement, self-alienation. And, and the author says in so many words, your physical body tells you nothing at all. It is not part of your authentic self. I thought, wait a minute, this is a defense of transgenderism? It sounds to me more like a, an excellent critique. Uh, I was, after my book, Love Thy Body, came out, it was, it was too late to use this example, but there was a wonderful example I read an interview with a 14-year-old girl. She had lived as a trans boy for three years from age 11 and then reclaimed her identity as a girl. And then she said in the interview, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And I thought, that's it. That's exactly the message we need to get across to people. That the Christian view is not about condemning and and critique and and you know we come across as negative it's wrong it's a sin don't do it but our first step in approaching people should be positive it should be love thy body as the title of my book says it should be that the christian view is expressing respect for the body we want to honor the design of the body we want to affirm that there's an intrinsic purpose in our body that is meant to inform our identity that is meant to give us clues in our moral choices. So these positive words are the ones that we really should be using as we approach people with a Christian perspective. I've noticed in a lot of the media coverage of the transgender issue that their language has changed yet again. You can always tell uh, that this so-called objective reporting is is only using words and phraseology that's been pre-approved by the trans movement. And I noticed in some articles now that they're not even referring to sex reassignment surgery. They're referring to gender confirmation surgery. And I always find this interesting because, for example, in the assisted suicide debate here in Canada, the first word to go was the word suicide. You always know what they want to avoid talking about by the word that gets brushed aside the quickest. Right now it's medical aid and dying because they would prefer not to discuss the issue of suicide. And when you've just the way you've just described so-called conversion therapy, which, of course, was a phrase that they coined in order to sort of compare this to the electroshock therapy that might have been used on 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 homosexual people, you know, 30, 40 years ago, has really successfully framed that debate when what you're describing is it's actually it would be gender confirmation therapy rather than 
confirmation therapy. But this has already been banned in a number of places in Canada and in a number of places in the United States. And that juggernaut just seems to be rolling. Is there any way that we can actually reclaim this discussion in a in a manner that will be effective at essentially stopping uh, jurisdictions from making it illegal, uh, illegal to do just what you say, which is to teach kids to love thy body? Right. I think that that's a very good question because there are no Christians anymore that use any sort of negative um, techniques. You're right, maybe some did, um, but they were not trained therapists. Um, In the past, they were not trained therapists, and it's now now all therapy is just talk therapy. Another change I've noticed in the wording used by transgender activists is um, they no longer say, I identify as a woman, but I am a woman. And these days you can even be kicked off Twitter if you challenge that. And if you say, no, if you have a male body, you're still a man. And I think this is an important um, key to one of the ways that we can be more effective is that, uh, fascinatingly, many conservative Christians are now finding themselves in league with radical feminists on this issue. And we're all saying, wait a minute, your body is still part of who you are. And if if you say, um, if you cannot say what a woman is, you cannot protect women's rights. You can't legal, legally protect a category of people if you cannot identify that category. So this is one of the, one of the ways that Christians are having an impact today. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with a group of women who are doing this. They're, they're reaching out to these radically leftist, socialist feminists and saying, we can agree on this, that to protect women, we must be able to say it's not a matter of gender, it's a matter of biological sex. Laws designed to protect women were designed to protect women because of their biological sex, because biologically women are, are vulnerable. During, they're, they're smaller than most men, they're weaker than most men. Because of their physical structure, they can be raped. A man can rape a woman, but a woman can't really rape a man. And then they are also economically vulnerable when they have children, and most women do at some point in their life. When they have children, it's very hard for a woman to bear a child and take care of young children and still uh, support a family. And so she is economically vulnerable during that time. And so in many ways, uh, laws, laws designed to protect women are designed to protect women because of their biology not because of their gender in the sense of, you know, my inner feelings. No, laws are not designed to protect your inner feelings. They were designed to protect women who are objectively female. So what have those conversations been like? That's very interesting because we've we've seen uh, these bizarre partnerships between radical feminists and and, and conservative Christians on, I, I can only think of one other issue, which was, was uh, pornography back in the late 80s and the early 90s. You had people like Jerry Falwell and Andrea Dworkin uncomfortably finding themselves in agreement uh, on this on this one issue. So what are those conversations that you're having with people that would oppose us on, well, virtually every other issue that you address in Love Thy Body? Exactly, and, and, and you have to be very careful then, because many of them are lesbians. When you talk to radical Leftists, socialists, feminists, a good percentage of them are lesbians. 
And so you have to, the, the question you asked earlier when I said, well, there's a, there's a common there's a common philosophy that connects homosexuality and transgenderism. You ha- what I'm doing is I'm very, very gently trying to help them to see that they, if you go down and look at the underlying philosophy, you're going to end up questioning some of your other views. Um, but you have to be very careful about it. And, and um, you, I, one of the things, too, I, I'd like to t- talk about is the legal side of this. Feminists are seeing this when it comes to transgenderism. They're recognizing that um, if the law does not recognize people on the basis of their biological sex, then then what? Well, how does it recognize us? You know, in the past, it was thought that uh, your gender is connected to your biological sex. You know, if you're a woman, then you are feminine. If you're a male, you are masculine. And the law responds the law regarding, um, for example, laws protecting women were based on that. But now, in order to to treat transgender people the same as normal, you know, as 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 people who are not transgender, um, the law, in order to give them so-called transgender rights, they have to say that biology doesn't matter. To treat a transgender woman, that is somebody born male the same as a biological woman, the law has to deny the relevance of biology and has to say gender is a matter, uh, gender is a matter of purely inner feelings. So that's why the state is begun, and, and corporations and schools are passing policies telling us who we must call he and she. Well, it's that same denigration of biology that underlies the homosexual movement. Because think of it this way, in the past, Marriage was a pre-political right based on the fact of that biologically humans are a sexually reproducing species. But the only way the law can treat same-sex couples the same as opposite-sex couples is to deny that biology has any relevance and to declare that marriage is just an emotional commitment. And that's what the Supreme Court did in its Obergefell decision. The trouble is there are endless varieties of emotional commitments. And so the state has claimed the authority to decide arbitrarily which of those emotional commitments uh, qualifies marriage. So you see, uh, even in the law, the key issue is biology. Are you going to just deny biology in the law? And if you do, then the state is making decisions based on no objective factors at all. It's saying, well, whatever you feel. You know, marriage is whatever you feel. You know, your gender is whatever you feel. And but then the law, the law, then laws are passed requiring everyone else to agree with that and to comply with that. And because it's not based on anything objective, these laws are completely arbitrary. And that's what we have to help our our secular, you know, radical leftist friends to see is there's a both in law and in philosophy there's a common issue here. And, and and if you recognize it in the issue of transgenderism, this denigration of biology, then you really need to see that it's the same thing underlying the homosexual movement. One of the most powerful arguments that the transgender activists are using, and when I say powerful, I mean it's immensely politically powerful, 
is their argument that denying their ideology and refusing to accept reality on their terms is essentially to endanger their lives. So what you have in Canada and in some states in America is uh, activists saying that if you do not affirm uh, uh, gender dysphoria, if you do not teach these things in the classroom, then you are responsible for transgender suicide. Uh, In uh, December of 2018, there was a ruling by a judge uh, in Idaho stating that uh, the Idaho Correctional uh, Institute, the the prison system essentially, uh, was guilty of cruel and unusual punishment because they had not permitted a biological male who was presenting as female to get the surgery that he needed to, you know, essentially be outfitted more closely in the physical sense. As a female, this was called cruel and unusual punishment. And I would say that probably most listeners, and I have to say that for myself, I find this argument the most difficult to respond to because it's difficult to make a rational, calm, uh, philosophical argument in response to an emotional accusation that you were actually endangering lives. And you even see this in terms of the terminology being used that now they are accusing those who refuse to use certain preferred pronouns of, quote, erasing transgender people. Um, that They're saying that words are are violent to, to a large extent, which is why there have been physical clashes in England between uh, radical feminists and, and trans activists. So how do you respond to, to that argument? You've, you, in your book, very effectively lay out the philosophical responses to the case that transgender people are making, but... I find that so often they aren't bothering to make a case. They're saying that if you don't affirm what I believe, you could be responsible for my death, and you are responsible for the suicides of others. Right. Well, there's been, there have been more recent studies, and um, there's, uh, and, and I don't have it at my fingertips because I just read it about two days ago. Um, there was a new study showing that. Um, uh, the 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 rates of suicide among transgender youth is not actually any higher than among the youth generally, and I think part of the problem is that, um, as with all of the studies on transgender people, um, many of them have been very small studies and self-selected, and have not been scientifically good studies. They've been very small. For example, one study uh, that I read about recently. At 27 self-selected transgender people. No, oh, come on. Well, that's not a large enough study. And the participants, again, were not randomly selected. So what that means is that transgender people who have experienced difficulties in life are more likely to fill out the form, which, of course, artificially increases the percentage of participants with a suicide history. Um, and then we don't know when the suicide attempts occurred. We do know that even after medical transition, many people attempt suicide. And, and that's really the tragedy here is that you probably know there was a study done in Sweden, uh, which has been more transgender friendly than most nations for a long time. And so this, this was probably the largest, longest study ever done. And, and even after transition, um, People who had transitioned were, what was it, 40% more likely to commit suicide yeah, yeah. than the average population. 
So, obviously, there are other issues going on besides their their gender dysphoria. There was a study um, by a, a, a professor at the University of Boston that was her name was Littman L I T T M A N, and she she researched the parents of uh, primarily girls who because there's more girls now than boys coming out as transgender. Um, so she interviewed their parents. And obviously this is a preliminary study because it wasn't of the girls themselves, but it was of their parents. And the parents reported a very large number. Um, again, again, it was depending on the, 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 de- depending on the uh, disorder you were looking at, um, something from 50 to 75% of the girls had already had a diagnosed mental or emotional problem before they came out as transgender, 50 to 75 percent, roughly, had a diagnosed issue. I mean, you and I may have things like depression that are not diagnosed because they're never that bad. Right. So I'm talking about people who had bad enough issues that they'd gone to a counselor and they'd been diagnosed as depression, bipolar disorder, and others, sometimes more serious, like schizophrenia. So these, these young people who are, becoming tra- who are coming out as transgender have a very high percentage of um, mental and emotional disorders already going into it. In fact, the highest one, interestingly enough, is autism. And that was the one that had already been firmly established when I wrote Love They Body. So I, I mentioned that in, in the book. Nobody knows why, but aut- autism has been very highly correlated with gender dysphoria for a long time. So what it appears is that Transitioning does not always, and in fact, many cases, does not solve the issues because that was not the primary issue. It seems like the, the feelings of being in the wrong body may sometimes be a symptom of uh, and some underlying uh, some underlying mental problem or emotional disorder that's already there, and that we are not being kind, we are not being compassionate, we are not being empathetic when we ignore the underlying emotional distress that may be driving the issue. Yeah, for our listeners, that was Dr. Lisa Littman you were referring to, um, and she's the one who recently published that study at Brown University on rapid onset gender dysphoria in adolescents and young adults, and that that article actually got pulled by the university. And, And I wonder, do you see us trending in that direction when we actually can't have a academic, scientific, philosophical discussion about this issue? Uh, where where do we go from here? Uh, you presented a, a philosophical case in your book. Dr. Lisa Littman, who's also a, a, a physician, was attempting to present a scientific position. But it seems like uh, left or right, radical feminist or evangelical apologist, everybody who tries to address this issue simply gets shouted down. Yeah, I think that that's one of the most serious issues um, in the whole transgender debate, and that is the coercion of language, coercion of speech. And this is what propelled Jordan Peterson into the spotlight. You know, he, 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 he was just a Canadian psychology professor, um, until he took a stand on coerced speech. In other words, he was, and the irony was, he was willing on a personal level, he was, if a, woman, if a man had transitioned 
and and presented as a woman, as a matter of personal courtesy, he would call her she. But what he objected to was the state dictating what you must say, that you must call someone he or she, depending on their gender preference. And I think that that was absolutely the right stand to take because anyone who's read Solzhenitsyn and his Gulag Archipelago, any book like that, knows that totalitarian systems often begin by compelling speech, by telling people what they may and may not say. Um, And if you compel or coerce people's speech, you can eventually control their thoughts because if you've, you've robbed them of the language to express their true beliefs, their true convictions, and you've required them to give voice to convictions that they do not hold. And that, that eventually messes with your mind. It eventually often changes people's minds. So I think that that's one of the most important issues here is transgenderism has now become a matter of coerced speech, which is an important step toward, toward totalitarianism. You know, there was a, there was a debate over what, what's the difference between authoritarianism and totalitarianism. An authoritarian state wants power, but they don't care much what you do in your private life. They just want political power. A totalitarian system is one that wants to control your thoughts. They want to control your inner life. And that's why I say that the issue of coerced speech is our first step toward totalitarianism. So it's, very, it's a very serious issue, and it's, it's right on our doorstep here in the States. It's, it's already in Canada, and it's, it's very close to being – those kind of policies are very close to being passed here in the United States as well. As a, a final question, uh, it looks like we're probably going to end on a depressing note, which is rather predictable on a topic like this. But when you look at what's happening with the transgender debate, I always wonder um, how this experiment's going to unfold for two reasons. First of all, the vast majority of, of and I use this word carefully and, and, and you'll understand what I mean by it, a normal, ordinary people don't buy this idea that men can get pregnant. Um, they don't buy most of the premises of the transgender movement and certainly not the more fringe ma- manifestations of it. Uh, and secondarily, due to the fact that uh, what we actually do see is, is more of a pushback against uh, transgenderism um, from people who were stereotypically on board with, with all of the other issues that you address in your book, Love Thy Body, abortion, same-sex marriage, and all of that. So if I can ask you to uh, to attempt prophecy for a moment, how do you see this experiment ending? Do you think that in 10, 15 years, um, it's, it's going to be time to pay the piper on all these transitions happening among kids at increasingly young ages, and that it's going to be a more obvious disaster uh, than, than, than same-sex marriage could ever be, for example? Or do you think that this, this uh, train is simply going too fast to stop? Um, that's a good question, because there are some people who do think um, there's enough pushback on transgender issues that um, that it, it's going to implode. I tend to think it is going to continue, and the reason is these are long-standing philosophical assumptions. In other words, people have been trained to think this way for a long time. It started with abortion. Abortion has that same divide between the body and the person. Um, 
the arguments for abortion rest on the notion that you, you can be, the fetus is human from conception. There are no bioethicists today, professional bioethicists. There are none who really deny that the fetus is human from conception. The evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. So what they say is, well, the title of a recent article was, so what if abortion ends life? And that's their mentality. So what if abortion ends life? Because as long as the fetus is merely biologically human, it has no value. It has to, be, it has to develop to the point where it becomes a person, which is defined by mental abilities, some level of cognitive functioning or self-awareness. And so do you see it's that same body-person dualism, that the body has no value, and as long as the fetus is just a body, quote-unquote, just a body, uh, it can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research and experiments. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, like Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. So being human is no longer enough for human rights. And the same logic is informing euthanasia, uh, just, just in the reverse. In other words, if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, then you are no longer a person, and you are just a body, and you can be unplugged, your food and water discontinued, your organs harvested, um, and, or, and, and your, um, your, me- your medical care discontinued. So that dualism, body versus person, started with, with abortion, is carried on through euthanasia. Uh, is even, you can even see it in the hookup culture. What is the hookup script? You can be connected with somebody just physically, and it has no meaning. It has no meaning for who you are as a person. You can have sex with somebody, and it's just a physical reaction. And you are not, the, the, the hookup script is, you are not in, supposed to be involved on a personal level, emotional level. You, you know, there's no, there's no expectation of any kind of personal relationship. So it's that the body can, again, the body is separated from the person, and the body has no particular meaning. In Love Thy Body, I quote a, a drummer from Austin, Texas, who said, sex is just one piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. And then you get to the homosexual issue, and it's the same thing. You know, my body may be male or female, but that doesn't mean anything about who I can be involved with sexually, uh, who I, how I identify my sexual orientation. My body has no say in my personal identity. Transgenderism, as we've talked about, does the same thing. My body is not part of my authentic self. All that matters is my feelings. Once you realize this dualism, this divide between the body and the person is, is informing all of these issues, you realize this is really deep-rooted. It's not going away anytime soon. And that's why I'm not particularly optimistic. I think, I think it's, it's a deep part of, the, of, the, of Western thinking right now about what it means to be human. And it's going to take some really hard work for us to help people to see it and to see why it's so damaging and so destructive and to recommend the Christian perspective as a view that teaches us to love our body, to respect our body, and to see the inherent purpose of our physical body and, and to see it as part of the authentic self. And that's the positive message that Christianity has today.
Well, Dr. Percy, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, go through your book and, and for writing this book and explaining this all to us. Well, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Nancy Percy, the author of Love Thy Body and many other phenomenal books. I hope you enjoyed or at least were informed by this conversation and head over to LifeSiteNews.com to check out our past shows as well as a wide variety of other opinion columns and news articles. Thanks so much for joining us this week and we really hope that you'll join us again next week.